Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker tonight, Father William Saunders, was ordained to the priesthood on May 12, 1984 and received a Master of Arts degree in Sacred Theology the same year. In 1992, Father Saunders received a doctorate in philosophy of educational administration from Catholic University of America. He served as president and dean of Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College and pastor of Queen of Apostles Catholic Church in Alexandria, Virginia until the year 2000 when he was appointed as the founding pastor of Our Lady of Hope Catholic Church in Potomac Falls, Virginia. Please welcome Father William Saunders. Well, it's good to be with you all. I'm glad to see everyone has a seat, because if not, I don't mind if you sit on the floor either. But I feel a little bit naked in a way, because I'm used to having like a blackboard and so on. I like blackboards, but so be it. Here we go. I was asked to speak about just war. It's not really a very easy subject. It's a subject that has plagued mankind from the beginning. It seems almost an oxymoron. How can you have just war and be a Christian? So it's good to look at this subject and to understand the tradition of our church, beginning with St. Augustine, who is the focus, but also to see how this tradition has under, been understood. Our Holy Father, in his recent encyclical, Charity in Truth, said that reason has to be purified by faith and religion has to be purified by reason. Now when we think about that, we need to use reason as we make decisions, especially in governance. But for Christians, that reason has to be purified by faith. Moreover, when we think about the practice of religion, so he doesn't say that faith has to be purified by reason, he says that religion so how we enact, how we practice religion. Whether one could say one is a Christian or of another faith, there has to be reason. And that makes sense, because after all, when we think about God, God is the source of all wisdom. And so that wisdom is made known to us, and the moral law is made known to us through what God has specifically revealed, the divine positive law. So we think of the Ten Commandments, what God has posited, put forth, and also then what we think of the natural law, what any human being who is honest and searching can know through reason. One doesn't have to be a Christian to know the natural law. So with that in mind then, we look at the subject of just war. Now we think of Christ. Christ in the Gospel of St. Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes comes to the point where he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be sons of God. Well, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus became true man to perfectly reveal God to us. So he's true God, 
who became true man. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. So those that make peace. But peace then is always premised on justice, doing what is right. And that justice has to be premised upon truth. Christ came to perfectly reveal truth to us. And with that truth, to enact justice. And when we have justice, we're going to have peace. But keep in mind, Jesus was not simply some passive, wimpy, kind of hand-wringing kind of person. Jesus confronted evil. He confronted that which was opposed to truth. He confronted that which was unjust. So we think, for instance, of like the exorcism scenes. Jesus doesn't negotiate with the demons. Jesus says, come out of the man. He drives them out. Or we think of the tax collectors in the temple and the merchants who were extorting people. Jesus doesn't negotiate with them. He drives them out. And we see righteous anger involved. Now, in the crucifixion, the whole passion, death, resurrection enactment, we have Christ who is put to death. He seems to be very passive, in a sense. He takes it. He doesn't retaliate. He, but the key is, he's not lowering himself to those standards. When they say, come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in you, Jesus doesn't do that. He's not going to lower his standards to their level. He's not going to retaliate. He's not going to be vengeful. No, he raises us up, and he conquers. Remember, here's a war going on, and he defeats evil, sin, and death through his passion, death, and resurrection. So we look to Christ then. And with that in mind, seeing that Christ came to give us new life, we look at our lives as very precious. We look at our spiritual life as precious, but also our physical life as precious. And this is really where the just war theory begins. The idea that we're called and we have a moral duty to preserve our own life. But we're called to take care of our person. Moreover, we're called under moral obligation to make sure that we protect others, the innocent. This is a moral duty. When Jesus said, love one another as, or love your neighbor as yourself, well, it's good to love your neighbor, but you have to love yourself too. If we're going to care for others as far as their needs, when we think of food, clothing, shelter, we have to care for ourselves. So that idea of self-preservation is important to always remember. And with that then, we think of how we are called in our duty, not only to protect our life, but to preserve our life. Of course, our life is not just here and now. We look to everlasting life in heaven. Now, with that in mind, let's think for a minute. In the very early church, so after our Lord ascends to heaven, the apostles begin their evangelization, we have a period of almost 300 years where the church is under persecution by the Roman Empire. During this time, to be a Christian, and we'd say a Catholic, the only kind of Christians there were, that 
it was illegal. And so we have those who are martyrs. Here we have a very non-combative kind of Christianity, a very, say, conscientious objector kind of Christianity. There are those, like Origen, great church father, who said, we do not brandish a sword against anyone, neither do we learn to wage war, because we have become children of peace through Jesus, whom we follow as our leader. Hippolytus, St. Hippolytus says, the soldier in the ranks will not kill anyone. If he receives the order to do so, he will not follow it, nor will he take the military oath. If he acts otherwise, he is to be excommunicated. Catechumens or members of the faithful who wish to become soldiers are to be excommunicated because they have despised God. Two references. So it seems to be that there was this passive resistance among Christians, that they had this conscientious objection. Well, one could think the times were different. We hear of, of course, military saints, Saint Sebastian. We have Nereus and Achilles, who were soldiers, who were martyrs. But one has to remember at that time, the church was under persecution. The military involved pagan practices of worship. So when you took like an oath, when you had different military rituals that involved the pagan gods. The emperor, to whom you swore allegiance, was also considered divine. So the whole military, war-making, fighting milieu was imbued with paganism. So it makes sense that Christians would have no part of defending such an empire, or emperor, or those kinds of strategies but then comes legalization. So in the year 313, Constantine, who had become emperor just the year before, legalizes Christianity. He promotes the Edict of Milan, and with that, the church comes out of the catacombs, above ground, and here we have Christianity and our church flourishing. So much so, but by the year 415, the emperor Theodosius II said that non-Christians were excluded from military service. So what has switched? Well, Christianity is now the norm. And with that, we need to protect the church, ourselves, the common good. And so with that comes the just war theory. So we have good old Saint Augustine. Now, going back, Saint Augustine, who died in the year 430, that great saint, a model for every convert there is, one who found Christ at the age of 30, was baptized, became that great bishop of Hippo, and then in northern Africa. Now, St. Augustine recognized the evils at hand. And by the time of his death, the Vandals and other barbarians were already invading across northern Africa, so he knew there had to be some way that we confront this evil, but in a just way, in accord with the principles that Christ had given to us. Hence, just war theory. So, when we begin, St. Augustine looked at that idea of self-defense, the preservation of self. And he looked at love your neighbor as yourself. 
We have to love our neighbor. We have to love ourselves. And that means loving our life. Therefore, he looked upon the legitimate defense of the person that a society must enforce and that the murder of innocent people is wrong. Now, St. Augustine would distinguish between innocent versus non-innocent. This is a distinction that sometimes we lose sight of. An innocent person has not committed a crime, has not had an unjust, aggressive activity, but is innocent, versus a non-innocent person who's guilty of a sin, a crime, an unjust act, and the like. Big difference. So Augustine would say that when we're dealing with war or self-defense, we are combating a non-innocent person. Therefore, even if a person to protect his life has to take the life of that non-innocent person, that's not murder. Murder deals with killing the innocent. That's an intentional, purposeful, evil action, to kill an innocent person. Hence, thou shalt not kill. But to protect oneself as a person, or even as a society, against a non-innocent person who's attacking, then the intention is different. And that is not killing, breaking the fifth commandment. That is self-defense. Big difference. Now, with that in mind, St. Augustine writes in different passages about legitimate warfare or self-defense. It is St. Thomas Aquinas that really puts it together. So if we look at the Summa of St. Thomas Aquinas, he will present a just war theory, and he has three basic principles, but then always followed by a quotation from St. Augustine. So when we look at Augustine and St. Thomas, the two go sort of hand in hand. Now, with that, if we look at St. Augustine's theory, and as we find it in the Summa, we have, first of all, the premise that there should be a tranquility of order. St. Augustine mentioned that, that there has to be a tranquility of order. So we respect the dignity of the human person. We safeguard the goods of all people. We practice fraternity so that we're building up the common good. There is that interaction and communication among others. This all builds a tranquility of order. Therefore, if there is a threat to that tranquility of order, then there is the means to declare a war to restore the tranquility of order. So with that, Augustine develops the just war theory. He says, first of all, now this is Aquinas, and then we'll deal with Augustine. First, Thomas Aquinas says, the authority of the sovereign by whose command the war is to be waged. He quotes Augustine. Augustine said, the natural order conducive to peace among mortals demands that the power to declare and counsel war should be in the hands of those who hold the supreme authority. Very important, because the competent authority is entrusted with the common good. A person, an individual, just can't declare war for a whole community. No, it has to be whoever is entrusted with the care of the common good. That competent authority is important. Secondly, this is Aquinas, a just cause is required, namely, 
that those who are attacked should be attacked because they deserve it on account of some fault. Quoting Augustine, a just war is wont to be described as one that avenges wrongs. When a nation or state has to be punished for refusing to make amends for the wrongs inflicted by its subjects or to restore what it has seized unjustly. So there has to be a just cause. So the competent authority has to address a just cause. That could be some kind of harmful action afflicted upon the people. It could be the seizure of property, the taking of land, whatever it may be. Thirdly, this is Aquinas again, it is necessary that the belligerents should have a rightful intention so that they intend the advancement of good or the avoidance of evil. Quoting Augustine, true religion looks upon as peaceful those wars that are waged not for motives of aggrandizement or cruelty, but with the object of securing peace, of punishing evildoers, and of uplifting the common good. Now, therefore, there has to be the competent authority who has a just cause to declare a war, and it has to be for or with a right intention. So the intention is to restore that tranquility of order. It could be to secure peace, of course, or it could include also punishing. It could be the restoration of whatever was taken. So the idea of restoring tranquility of order. So three basic principles, the competent authority, the rightful intention, the just cause. And this is all Augustine and Aquinas meshed together. Now it's interesting that when Aquinas presents this in the Summa, he does so under the treatise of charity. Think of that. Charity. Sort of strange finding principles of war under charity. But the idea is love your neighbor as yourself. There's the key. Love the innocent person. The obligation of the government to take care of the governed. So it comes under charity. Now with that, one has to remember, we are the victims of original sin. And Augustine makes that point. He never forgets it. Sometimes in our world we do. We have this idealism of a utopia, and we forget we're the victims of original sin. Remember, right after Adam and Eve in Genesis committed that sin, what's the next sin? Cain kills Abel. Murder. So we're the victims, and we deal with this darkening of the intellect, this weakening of the will, this concupiscence, and we deal with those weaknesses that move us to say, I want this, I want that. Think of it. We aren't perfect. How wonderful it would be if we took all the swords and we beat them into plowshares as we hear in the prophecies about the Messiah given by Isaiah. But the swords are still there. And they probably always will be there because we are the victims of original sin. Now we have to think then. There are those circumstances then. Given that we're living in this world, in this community of nations, with so many people, 
that we have to recognize evil and confront that evil and stop that evil. Again, if you want peace, there has to be justice, and justice is based on truth. So if there's going to be someone who violates justice, that has to be confronted. And if not, how can there be peace? There has to be the preservation of justice. So if we fail to confront the evil and stop it, the situation becomes worse. And actually, we fail in our duty then. We fail in our duty in charity to preserve not only our life, but the lives of others entrusted to our care. For instance, this year, we celebrate the anniversary of the end of World War II, 65 years ago. Think, if Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and others would have stopped Hitler in 1939, instead of just saying, peace in our time, we might not be celebrating this anniversary this year. So we can't be delusional. We have to look at the reality. So again, reason purified by faith. So we have our faith. We also have reason. And we have to deal with the situation. Now, when we think about it, just war theory, the reason why we have it, beginning with Augustine and then Aquinas, is because it does define the moral responsibilities of government. That's important. It also defines ends, meaning the pursuit of the tranquility of order. It also then places parameters on means. Very important, especially dealing with victims of original sin. Now, with that, times have changed. When we think about St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and we think about three principles, the competent authority, the right intention, the just cause, those are good points. But we can see warfare's changed since their time. Augustine didn't have to deal with guns or cannons or nuclear bombs. Neither did Aquinas. We do. So in the tradition of the church, we have expanded this idea of just war theory to meet given circumstances. And part of the reason is because of what happened in the last century, the 1900s, and particularly what happened during the course of World War II. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So if we want to go into this just war theory and expand it, we have, first of all, the criteria of use ad bellum. So the justice for war. So use ad bellum, Latin words. I-U-S, use ad bellum. First, again, proper authority. So there always has to be that legitimate authority that declares war. And that legitimate authority is acting on behalf of all the people. Now, this constituted public authority has a strict moral obligation to defend the security of those for whom it is responsible. So if that competent authority is a Congress, as it is in our country, that it is Congress who declares war. So be it. If it is a king or a queen, so be it. But whoever is entrusted with that authority 
to preserve the common good, that authority has the moral obligation to defend that society. So, proper authority. Which means, of course, then, you and I cannot vote right now and declare war on Canada. Can't do it. No matter what. We could, but it's not going to go anywhere. It takes Congress. And it takes the motivation from the President for Congress to do that. But anyway, second, still has to be a just cause. So there still has to be an unquestioned danger that has been posed. So a just cause includes a defense against aggression, the recovery of something wrongfully taken, or the punishment of evil. The catechism attests that the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. That's paragraph 2309 of the catechism. So, we have, again, proper authority, just cause, again, right intention. So, there has to be the right intention, just objectives. There is not a masking of ulterior motives. A person does not go into war for some other motive than restoring the tranquility of order. So, St. Augustine would say, true religion looks upon as peaceful those wars that are waged not for motives of aggrandizement or cruelty, but with the object of securing peace or punishing evildoers and of uplifting the common good. So an evil intention, such as taking another nation's land or absorbing that nation, or seeking to destroy a race of people, is wrong. That is an ulterior motive. That's not the right intention. Just as an aside, I don't know if you ever remember the Peter Sellers movie, The Mouse That Roared. Anybody remember? That's sort of like this little funny country who declares war on the United States. And what's the intention? So the United States conquers it and then rebuilds the country and modernizes it. Wrong intention, right? Now, we don't have such things today. But the idea of having a false premise going to war so that a country can absorb We've seen that in past history. So, point four, last resort. So, all reasonable, peaceful alternatives must have been exhausted or have been deemed impractical or ineffective. So, these contentious parties should try to resolve their differences through peaceful negotiations, mediation, whatever, before entering into war. Something like an embargo could be imposed rather than going to war. Here in our recent times, again since World War II, we have the United Nations, and so the United Nations tries to mediate, to resolve issues before coming to war. So the key here is that before going to war, there should try to be some kind of a resolution, negotiation, anything possible ought to be done, within reason, to avoid war. Fifth point, though, there has to be proportionality. And that is that the good achieved by waging the war must not be outweighed by the harm. What good is it if you wage a war, and maybe even win that war, and your country's left devastated in the process? That's called a Pyrrhic victory. Remember, Pyrrhus was a Greek king of a little city-state 
waged war with the Romans. The Romans attacked him. And yes, he won, but he lost just about everything. It's like, was it worth it? So one has to remember there's a proportionality. And this includes even the weapons one will use, too. But that comes a little bit later. Now, the Catechism says the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. One has to be careful. We have very powerful weapons. And we do not need to use those weapons if not absolutely necessary. So let's face it, if Canada captures a fishing vessel of ours that encroached on their territorial waters, we don't nuke them. Wouldn't make sense, right? So there has to be proportion and means. Also, a probability of success. So the achievement of the war's purpose must have reasonable chance of success so that the tranquility of order will be restored. So we've taken Aquinas's, Augustine's three principles and added three more. So still the competent authority and the just cause, the right intention, but now last resort. And thank God with means of communication and bodies like the UN or maybe a third party country that will offer negotiation and so on, we can avoid wars, hopefully. There has to be proportionality and also then the probability of success. Next thing though, if we've hit all those criteria, then technically we can declare war, justly. But then comes the principles for waging war, use in bello. So the rights or the laws in war. And here the basic idea is not all is fair in love and war. It's not. So one principle, discrimination. Very important principle. Armed forces ought to be used to fight armed forces. Combatants should strive to fight non-combatants. Now granted, sadly, you'll always have innocent people whose lives are taken. And we hear terms like collateral damage and things like friendly fire and so on. But the idea here is that the intent is for combatants to fight combatants, for the armed forces to fight armed forces. So anything that is done that wantonly, wantonly destroys an enemy's countryside, cities, or economy, simply for the sake of punishment, retaliation, or vengeance is condemned. Now, again, this arises especially after what was seen in World War II. At the Second Vatican Council, in the document Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world, the church fathers taught this, quote, the development of armaments by modern science has immeasurably magnified the horrors and the wickedness of war. Warfare conducted with these weapons can inflict immense and indiscriminate havoc, which goes far beyond the bounds 
of legitimate defense. Every act of war directed to the indiscriminate destruction of whole cities or vast areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and man, which merits firm and unequivocal condemnation. Now, why did the Church Fathers write this in 1965? Because just 25 years earlier, they saw the horrors. For instance, World War II. Japan, the empire of Japan, began its aggression in 1931, invading Manchuria. And that would continue on until 1945. The Japanese killed 22 million people, 19 of whom were civilians. 19 million civilians died at the hands of the Japanese empire to brutality, slavery, or malnutrition. If you ever read any accounts of what's called the Rape of Nanking, it is absolutely horrifying. It existed. Or you think then of how Hitler purposely used the V2 buzz bombs to target population sites in London. Vast areas of housing units were destroyed purposely to break the morale of the British people. These weren't factories but these were housing units for normal, regular civilians, non-combatants. At the same time, in Hamburg, July 27, 1943, the Allies dropped phosphorus bombs. 45,000 people were burned alive in one day. In Dresden, February 14, 1945, Again, the Allies dropped phosphorus bombs on Dresden. 135,000 people incinerated in one day. Imagine. And these were civilians. A part of it's the retaliation. Hiroshima, the atomic bomb, 1945. It's estimated 70 to 80,000 people were killed by that and another 70,000 injured. Now, the problem with war is we can lose sight of the principles, and we have the weapons. And so we always have to go back to that principle of discrimination. We don't target purposefully civilians, innocent people. How important that is. So the church saw that, and that's why the Second Vatican Council wrote and condemned that any act of this wanton, indiscriminate warfare is a crime against God and against humanity. But since then, things have gotten worse, right? Think of germ warfare, anthrax. A single airplane releasing by aerosol 100 kilograms of anthrax spores on a nice, clear, calm night over Washington, like tonight, could kill between one and three million people. Us. We aren't combatants but it could be done. Smallpox. Now, smallpox actually is a rather old form of germ warfare. In 1346, when the Tartars were sieging Kaffa in the Ukraine, they hurled plubonic plague-infected bodies by catapult over the city wall to infect the people with smallpox. But then also during the French and Indian War in our country, Jeffrey Amherst, a British officer, we were British at the time, right? gave smallpox-infected blankets to Indians. 
And that was done during the Indian Wars in our West during our time in the 1800s. Sad. Germ warfare. We also have to remember, according to U.S. intelligence reports, that countries like North Korea, Iran, Libya, and Syria have weapons of germ warfare. If that doesn't frighten you, it should. Now, cyber warfare. This is something new. Have we ever thought what would happen if somebody really hacked some of the systems in our country? I build a church and a school. Everything's run by computers. The air conditioning system's run by computers, of all things. The days of the good old-fashioned thermostat are over. Everything's computerized. Well, that's a little church. And when it goes wrong, it's a real pain. Think of a country. Who hacks into our electrical grid system? Or hacks into our financial system? Or hacks into the Pentagon? Who knows? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a country, right? It could just be a person with an evil intent. So the kinds of warfare could easily be very indiscriminate these days. But when you think about who's waging the war, hold on to that thought. Another problem. But secondly, in waging war, while it has to, as best as it can, discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, there also has to be due proportion. Meaning, combatants use only those means necessary to achieve their objectives. You don't need to use the nuclear missile on Canada over a fishing vessel incident, right? So there has to be the due proportion. Also, due proportion involves mercy. Meaning, when the combat finishes, there has to be mercy. If you capture a soldier that is an enemy, you can't just slaughter the soldier. There has to be mercy. Yes, you can imprison the soldier and so on, but still there has to be mercy. There has to be mercy if you take over territory and there are civilians there. You just don't wipe out the innocent civilians, but rather mercy. And so, there always has to be that sense of due proportion, and that is tempered by mercy. But then, after the war, postbellum, what comes up? Again, mercy. Hopefully, the release of prisoners. Hopefully, the restoration of the tranquility of order. So, the idea of having this extreme, burdensome, retaliatory kind of peace is not going to build peace. If the Treaty of Versailles had been worked differently, we may not have had World War II. But it was a very vengeful, retaliatory kind of treaty. Potsdam, where the powers, Churchill and Truman and Stalin, worked together and pretty much gave away Eastern Europe, allowing it to come under the communist influence what did that set the stage for? The Cold War and the threat of the missiles and so on. If you're as old as I am, you remember when there's the threat of Soviet Union missile activity. And so, did it set the stage for really peace? No, it didn't. So again, we look at for after the war, the restoration of tranquility and mercy. But if you take all of these principles then and you boil them down, we get back to that same point. If you want peace, 
you have to work for justice, and if you want justice, you work for truth. And that's Christianity when it gets down to it. Now, the principles again, if any of you need a little review here and there, remember to wage a war, proper authority, just cause, right intention, last resort, proportionality, and a probability of success. Once you are in war, there has to be discrimination, and there has to be due proportion. After the war, there has to be mercy, and there has to be the restoration of the tranquility of order. So if St. Augustine were here today, hopefully he would come up with those principles. Now, the problem is we need to do some more thinking here. Now, this is my own little speculation here, and I do not pretend to be a general or a Department of State official or a CIA agent or anything like that, but just looking at what I know. When we think about that idea of the competent authority waging war, who's the enemy? Here's a problem. We aren't dealing in those nice days of Great Britain versus Germany or France or the United States. We have all kinds of terror networks and we have rogue nations and so on. So we have problems here. Who do you declare war on? When I mentioned about the cyber kind of warfare, who do you declare war on? What kind of hacker? It's almost like you're in a state of war to some extent to secure yourself. Or you think of somebody who could develop anthrax. Remember, a couple of years ago at least, there were those scares and they had to close down either the Senate or the House office buildings because people were getting letters with little funny white powder. And there was that scientist who was, I believe, at Fort Meade who had been arrested and so on. Well, get a good scientist, and with the internet, you never know, someone could develop this. Who knows? So it's hard to know who your enemy is and to declare war. How do you declare war on like Al-Qaeda? Where is it? Where's the headquarters? Where are the little cells and so on? Very problematic. And then, too, as far as the competent authority to declare war, to some extent, we have this delusion that the United Nations is going to solve everything. Now, granted, it's a good, legitimate place for countries to meet and to address issues and things like that. But our country, or any country, and the government that's entrusted to protect the individuals can't be tied down by some other international body. So we should not depend upon, let's say, a security council that includes China and France and who, Russia to allow us to defend ourselves. And we have to be careful because some people have mutated this into thinking that to have approval to defend yourself, you need the United Nations. No. A country, our legitimate government, has the responsibility to protect us. So there's something to think about when it comes to the competent authority. One, who do you declare war on? That's one thing. Who are the, who's the enemy? And where do you find the enemy? And secondly, do I need permission from the United Nations to do my job as a leader? Good question. Just cause. Well, Aquinas and Augustine 
and really up through World War II, the idea was, well, someone attacked first. What about the preemptive strike? What happens when you know someone has got a weapon and they're going to use it on you? Do you wait and just say, bring it on? No, do you wait and say, okay, Iran, send over your missile loaded with nuclear warheads or germ things and so on and bring it on and then I'll attack you? Well, if you're in Israel right now and you know Iran might have that capability and the leader of Iran is a nutcase who says the Holocaust didn't happen and it's run by a radical Islamic clergy, are you just going to sit back and wait for the missile to come? So you have to wonder, do we have to change the thinking about a just cause? If a country is making threats and has the weapons and seems intent on using them, does that mean we have the moral obligation to protect ourselves by destroying that weaponry? Good question. And that's a real debatable subject now among moral theologians. Do we have to wait for an attack? I don't think I would myself. Now that's Saunders' speculation here. But I don't think I would wait around. Or you think about North Korea. Here you have the dictator. His country's starving. He has nuclear capabilities being developed. Do we just wait around? What's going to stop him to, from using those nuclear weapons just to start a war to get his country out of starvation and so on? What's going to stop him? Think about it. Do we just sit back and do nothing? Thank God we have intelligence services that hopefully are looking at these things. So we have these rogue states now that we have to deal with. And part of this too is that we have a different thinking. Remember when I started with this lecture, I mentioned our Holy Father said that reason is purified by faith and religion is purified by reason. And this is Saunders' personal opinion here. I think we've got a problem with Islam because it's not a religion that's based on reason. When you look at the spread of Islam in the 600s, the Muslims by bloodshed overtook the Holy Land, Northern Africa, most of Spain. Thank God they were stopped by Charles Martel. They enslaved the Christians and that's been the modus of how the religions spread. Now, I am sure not all Muslim people are violent people, but sad to say, the Koran allows them to be. The Koran does talk about killing the infidel. And if you have a radical sect or a radical leader like an Osama bin Laden, what stops them? What parameters do they live by? It is frightening because when you think about the terrorist states in our world, they're either communist like North Korea or they're Islamic overall. Think about that. We're dealing with two philosophies, systems that are very dangerous. 
And so we need to pause and really think about this, that how can we negotiate peace when someone's thinking is totally the opposite. Something's wrong when a religion will call a person a martyr when that person, maybe a mother with a child, walks into a marketplace, she's loaded with bombs, and blows herself up, and maybe 50 innocent people. That person's a martyr? Not in Christianity sense, but that's what some would call it. Very dangerous. How do we possibly deal with this? So we have to think the preemptive strike and dealing with what the enemy is and the motive of that enemy is more and more so critical for our own survival and self-defense. And then, too, the last resort. Well, what's a last resort here? Do we negotiate with terrorists? Can we? Do we have to use every practical and effective means? Well, we should try, of course. But eventually, you have to say, this is the way it is, and we have to protect ourselves. So those three criteria of competent authority and who's your enemy, the idea of a just cause and the preemptive strike, the idea of last resort and just do you really negotiate with terrorists or can you, are all questions that we have to deal with. Now, what I've said is my own speculation and so on, but it's the world in which we live. It's time we deal with some of the reality of that world and cut through the political fluff at times and deal with reality. And so we have to look and, again, go back to those very simple principles of just war, hold true, but also apply them to today's realities. Again, if we want peace, there has to be justice. And justice is based on truth. And the system of knowing that truth, that's the beauty of Christianity, faith and reason working together. The system of knowing that truth is so critical for having peace in this world. Well, we'll close up with a couple of things. In Tolstoy's War and Peace, book three, the hero, Pierre Buzikov, arrives at the battlefield of Berodino, and he finds that the fog of war has descended, obscuring everything he has expected to be clear. There's no order. There's no familiar patterns of action. All is contingency. Count Bazukov admits, even distinguish our troops from the enemies is impossible. The fog of war. War gets foggy at times. It's one thing to have all the principles but doesn't it get foggy? But thank God for the principles. Without them, we'd be in disaster. Our late Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, once addressed a group of soldiers. This was during the Persian Gulf War. He said, quote, Peace is taught by sacred scripture, and the experience of men itself is more than just the absence of war. And the Christian is aware that on earth a human society that is completely and always peaceful is unfortunately a utopia and that the ideologies which presented as easily attainable only nourish vain hopes. The cause of peace will not go forward by denying the possibility 
and the obligation to defend it. May God bless you. I think we have a break now. Thank you, Father Saunders. Excellent, excellent lecture. We're going to take a quick break and come back for a short question and answer. I'd just like to, first of all, thank Sabatino for organizing, no, the Institute for Catholic Culture. I think it's wonderful. You know? Thank you, Father. Part of my priesthood ministry in this diocese has always been involved in education. And adult education like this is so needed in our area. And I hope that more and more of these kinds of talks will be for us poor people outside the Beltway. You know, <laughs> so much happens inside the Beltway for some reason. But for us little hinterland people here in the new parishes, and especially Loudoun County, it would be nice to have more of this. Yes, thank you. You're We're welcome. coming, Father. We're coming. Yes, good. All right. Oh, I just I wonder what if... There is a difference, modern-day states versus the states in Augustine or Aquinas' day are secular for the most part, as opposed to religious. And I'm wondering if that has an effect on the just war theory. It does make sense. And I'd say definitely there is a difference in that you don't have, like, Catholic monarchies, really, as you would back then, like France and Germany and so on. And maybe it's better that we don't, that you don't have the Catholic king of France waging war and the Catholic king of Germany and so on. I mean, that doesn't look so good, right? So, but nevertheless, again, these principles, even though we say it's part of our Catholic tradition, are very reasonable. They are reasonable principles. So even though here priest is giving these and you find them even in the catechism and so on, if you look at many secular sources about just war theory, like Seabury and so on, you'll find these principles. So they're rather classic. They're reasonable. And that's what's important. The problem is when you deal with a society or a nation that doesn't have that Western reason-based thinking. And that's the point I made concerning Islamic countries or even communist countries. It's a different thinking, which is a problem. You know, like when you think of the Soviet Union, what was the problem? It wasn't simply the Cold War. If you ask John Paul II, it was communism. That's the problem. The thinking of communism and how it thinks about the person and society and so on, there's the problem. That's just sort of like, let's make a deal or something, or I don't know, <laughs> the price is right. Uh, there are two Chinese uh, colonels in the People's Liberation Army who wrote, who wrote a book, Unrestricted Warfare, about the opposite end of the moral spectrum. And they talk about things like you, uh, generating earthquakes and tsunamis and weather warfare and that sort of thing as an act of sabotage. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, is there anything tactical uh, that you can do uh, in, in just warfare to, uh, to combat another nation that might be considering unrestricted warfare? Well, again, it's the idea of that preemptive strike. If you know that someone is going to do something, like whatever means it is to generate an earthquake, there must be some, say, explosive device, I would presume, then you deal with that situation before they use it. And this is why there's so much concern about your Iran 
and North Korea having nuclear capabilities. What will they do with it? So we're being very proactive about it now. But God forbid the time comes when they do have a nuclear bomb. And they might, for all we know, they might. Because you're dealing with these rogue states. They might just use it. Because they don't care. I mean, this is the thing. You know, one problem with us is we do believe in the preservation of life. And we do believe in innocent people and so on. These people don't. They don't care. When you've got Kim Il-jong allowing his whole nation to starve, and he's not losing weight from what I've seen on the TV, something's wrong. They don't care. Something's wrong with a society that allows people blowing themselves up and killing maybe 60, 80 people and so on. Father, with um, July 4th coming up on us and uh, the Declaration of Independence and all that sort of stuff, Mr. Jefferson very amply covered points two, three, and four in his Declaration of Independence. However, uh, our Revolutionary War was caused by a bunch of Vermont farmers and people of that sort. Uh, there was no sovereign to, to engage in this war. Uh, what's our position in terms of just war? Well, according to Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, and of course, I went to the same school he did, William and Mary, so that helps. The, <laughs> just have to throw that in there. The, he, again, goes back to really a natural law theory. He said, in the course of human events, and it speaks about the creator and those rights that have been given to the creator or by the creator to us have been violated. So that was the justification for the war. The truth principles were violated and hence we're overthrowing that government, declaring independence. Father, first of all, um, thank you for bringing clarity to a very complex subject tonight. Uh, I'm troubled by the, the, um, the aspect of due proportion that you mentioned. Because About what? Due proportion. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that as being showing mercy to captives and so on. And we have a real live example today at Guantanamo Bay where on the one hand, these people are still a threat to us. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we have to show them some kind of justice. And I wonder if you could put some color on that for us as to what, what your advice would be in this real-life situation today. Well, I don't know all the details of Guantanamo Bay as far as who's there. But they're terrorists. They've been captured. They're in a military prison. They are being, as best I know, fed. They have access to health care and so on, they're being imprisoned. And I would think that they would be going through, if they are guilty of actual terrorist acts, going through some kind of a military tribunal of justice. But justice is there. It's not as though, like what happened in World War II at times, especially in the Japanese internment camps, just taken out and shot, or worse. We aren't doing experiments on them and so on. So they are being held. I don't know all the specific charges for each one and so on, but we'd presume that there's a military order of justice here. And it is warfare. So it's not as though we should be bringing them, I would think, to the United States and giving them all the rights as citizens that we would have. I mean, I think that idea of bringing people to New York, terrorists and so on, is sort of 
don't know, inane might be a good word. But, the, but I mean, this is, we're dealing with a military conflict, and there are military rules of justice that should govern that. Uh, what you have just explained is a set of teachings related to the Catholic Church. Okay. How can this be practically applied when we don't have any Catholic government? Can this be applied on a factional level? Can this be applied on a personal level? I think it's difficult. So well, what do you think? Again, it's, while they are Catholic teachings, these are well respected even in the secular community. If you go to any, as best that I know, any military war college, for instance, you're going to be studying St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and it will be brought up to date, and so on. Again, the principles reflect reason. So it's not simply a faith-based perspective. Faith and reason work together. And that's why, for instance, we do have mercy involved here. So reason and faith work together. Anything that I said tonight, any reasonable person ought to be able to implement, I would think. An, an atheist, even. I would think that when you look at these principles, an atheist should be able to say, yeah, that makes sense. If you have to go to war, these things make sense. And that's actually the beauty of our Catholic faith. It doesn't contradict reason at all. I, just, I would like to follow that up for a, a moment, because Dr. Marshall, who speaks for us all the time, was called by President Bush after 9-11 to come and refresh him on the just war theory uh, at the White House. So here's a guy who's, who's not a Catholic, right, in President Bush, and he's, he's calling on Dr. Marshall to come and refresh him on this principle because of what Father Saunders is saying about the respect that's held in the wisdom of the church, which is one of the reasons why these things have to be readily available to us in our discussions with people to be able to give a reasoned answer for, for what we believe. And, uh, and to, to bring those things into the public sphere. Anyways, we have, we have one or two more questions. Hello, Father. I would like to know if um, the war in Iraq qualifies uh, qualifies a just war, and if it is so, um, why is there, are there so many differences among our pastors when there was this discussion about just okay. wars? So the war in Iraq that was declared, well declared, waged, by our government. I am not going to make a conclusive statement about that. No, the reason, I'll be very honest with you, I, didn't, I don't work for CIA, so I don't know all the intelligence information, or the State Department, or the military. Now, the premise was that Saddam Hussein and his regime was a threat, that they had weapons of mass destruction. That was one of the premises. And one has to remember, too, that for many years since the first Gulf War, Saddam Hussein did everything he could to violate the UN sanctions. I mean, really, when you think about it, there was not a repentant character involved in this. And one cannot deny that in some ways that he had some connection with terrorist links and so on. So the man was a threat, if nothing else. Now, granted, the idea of chemical weaponry or germ weaponry, that's very important. And I remember from the news, now again, I'm not CIA or anything like that, but I remember watching on the news, Saddam Hussein had his little guys in their little white germ war warfare outfits parading in the street. Well, he had me scared, quite frankly. I thought, yeah, they must have it. 
You know, and he's boasting that if you guys attack us, we're going to release all our germ, germ warfare. And quite frankly, remember he used it on the Kurdish people in his own country. So the threat in some way was there. Now, that's all I know. I would hope that the powers that be, President Bush, his advisors, intelligence service, and so on, when they committed our country to this, they thought this was the best to do to preserve our security. That's what I would hope. Maybe 30 years from now, someone will write a book or multiple books and look back at this. It's hard to say. We are, we are limited in our knowledge. I would just hope that our government and just the different regulations placed on it with congressional oversight committees and so on, we would be making the right decision. I'd hope. I'll leave it at that. Okay, final question. Good evening, Father. The justification for a just war theory is that we protect the innocent and eliminate the non-innocent. So I suppose the innocent is the enemy. So how will you... Uh, who's, who's the non... The, the non-innocent is, is the, the enemy, enemy right? right. <laughs> then how will you reconcile with the, with the scripture passage of like loving your enemies? Could you comment on that, Father? Well, you love your enemy, but you have to love yourself too. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I allow you to kill me, I'm not loving me. <laughs> I'm not loving you either. Because I'm allowing you to do something unjust. See? So charity is based on truth. And if you're doing something harmful, something that's wrong, it is not charitable for me to allow you to continue on. If I see you, forget warfare, but like let's if I saw you doing something self-destructive, like abusing drugs or alcohol, and I said nothing, I'm not loving you. Thank you, Father Saunders. Sure. Thank you again, Father Saunders. Could you please conclude in prayer for us? St. Michael the Archangel, let us stand up, be our protection against the Lord and the spirit of the devil. May God rebuke you from the We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.